and clap to the one who's worthy tonight before you guys take a seat. You guys can have a seat. Um, yes, man, I tell you what, I will sacrifice a brick wall that we had over at the high school for a floor like this to just, I mean, to hear the voices of the, man, come on now. I mean, just, you know what I mean? I love that. About four others do too. That's cool. Um, Hey, here's the deal. I'm going to approach the the word tonight a little bit differently. So I need you guys to get out your Bibles. Open to Luke chapter 9. What I want to do is I want to read this story together first. We're going to read through the whole story first together. And then after that, I want to pose some questions that I desire to answer. Um, And then from there, then we'll kind of work through the story again. Does that make sense to everyone? You all with me? So Luke chapter 9, verse 28 is where we're going to start now. I need to remind you where we ended off last week. Because it was pretty sweet when Peter, all right, one of Jesus' disciples, was asked by Christ, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, you are the Christ of God. And so far in Luke, we've only seen two other groups of people call Jesus the Christ of God. Number one, the demons, and number two, angels. And so for a disciple, for Peter to now say, you are the Christ of God, you are the Messiah, you are the one we've been waiting for. For a disciple to say that, you all need to understand how huge that is. And friends, that, that confession of Peter is going to play largely into our story tonight. Luke chapter 9, verse 28, are you all there? Say, I'm there. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, referring to uh, last week's uh, message, He took Peter, James, and John with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone, and the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The transfiguration, and if you don't know yet what that means, we'll get to that. Now look, 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 look. I've I've encouraged many of you in your study of the Scripture that as you study by yourself in your room or, or at work when you have a break, whenever it is that you're studying the Scripture... One of the best ways to do that is to read through the passage and then write down in your journal, whatever it may be, all the questions that come to mind. From this text, as I studied studied for tonight, there were four main questions that that, that I came across, and I want to pose them to you. Uh, The first question is this. Why is the transfiguration significant in Scripture? This this one's kind of obvious. I think we can all work with that one, but we're going to attempt tonight to answer that question. Question number two is this. Um, uh, Why are Moses and Elijah here at the transfiguration this was one of my biggest questions from the story and i think that you'll see the answer here in a little bit Uh, question number three says this why does peter's response 
uh, this week create tension from when he called Jesus the, the, the Christ of God last week. There's some tension there in his response last week versus his response this week. And the last question, and maybe my favorite, why does the transfiguration not make Avery's baby Bible? And I just want to do a quick survey because, uh, again, I, I love Avery's baby Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's amazing. Uh, I would recommend it even for some of you. But can you guys remember back to your baby Bibles? If you ever had a baby Bible that wasn't like word for word the Scripture, did anyone have a baby Bible that included the transfiguration? Did anyone have that baby Bible? Anyone in here? All right, zero percent, okay? So whether you're Avery or whether you're you, okay, the transfiguration doesn't make the baby Bible, and it irks me, all right? So these are the four questions that we're going to attempt to answer tonight. Let's start again in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this. Now, a lot of times we compare the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're, if you're new to the church or new to Christianity, there are four, basically four books that are written about the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are very similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we call them the synoptic gospels. One of them is very different, John. All right? But all three synoptic gospels record the transfiguration. And if you're, if you're really, really diligent in your study, okay, and you go back and you're reading Matthew and Mark's account of the transfiguration, you're going to notice that Matthew and Mark say after six days, where Luke says after eight days, and so instantly it brings in your mind, like, is this a different story? Like, can, can Luke just not count? Like, what's happening here? I'm going to propose a couple different things to you. Remember, Luke's a doctor, so he can definitely count, all right? So there, there's a good chance, and, and this is consistent with Luke's teaching, that when Moses in Exodus chapter 24 spends six days, and we're going to get, you'll see this because we just read this, spends six days in, the, in a cloud, which anytime you see a cloud in Scripture, it most represents the presence of God. That when Moses spends six days in the cloud, that on the seventh day, God spoke. And so Luke is kind of trying to, to differentiate here, quite possibly, Moses' experience in the cloud versus Christ. It's also possible, and this is a little bit more simple, that, that Matthew and Mark included like just the six days in between where Luke counted the first day and the last. Does that make sense? So it's all the same story. Whether it's six days or eight days, we're not really sure. But listen to this. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. There is a, there's a separation of the disciples that keeps happening. This is the second time that Peter... James and John have been separated from the twelve. You remember that all three of these guys are fishermen, all right? Any fishermen in the crew? Just give a little woot. All right, sweet. Not many of you. Praise God. Uh, tell the fish story. Yes, tell the fish story. We have this fish in our office, um, and, and like we, we, don't, we don't take care of fish very well at all, and it just died this morning. I don't know if you guys all noticed this. We're going to be really sad about this, but I had to throw her in the trash can today. So anyway, I, I don't have a great appreciation for fish. Anyway, Peter, James, and John. Yeah, sorry. For, I think Danielle actually gave us that fish. Wherever she's at, we apologize to you. But Peter, James, and John are separated, all right, first as fishermen. But you guys remember uh, a message that Jason taught in Luke chapter 8, verse 51, that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to watch the healing of Jairus' daughter. So there keeps being this separation. We're going to see throughout the Gospels that Jesus invests a lot into Peter, who we'll see in Acts, and we've already seen as he speaks up for the disciples, as kind of the spokesman for the disciples. Then we see James and John, who are like, and this isn't like a status thing, but who are separated as well from the twelve, and then you have the twelve. And they go where? 
they go up on a mountain to pray. And Luke constantly records the great moments of Jesus' life are enveloped with prayer and him being alone or with a couple of his friends. And I can't, I can't help but take an opportunity to ask you very poignantly how fervent your prayer life is here tonight. Like if you were to be really honest, when was the last time, like Jesus here and Peter, James, and John, that you just got away from the culture, from your dorm room, from the household, from your workplace? When was the last time you just got away and you spent some significant amount of time away from all of the noise of this world and you just cried out and prayed and listened? Friends, I fear that one of our greatest weaknesses as a a church community as a whole, Big C in America, is we just don't pray, friends. And I want to bring us into the fact that the Messiah, the one that everyone was waiting for, constantly is praying. And so let me make something, let me make an obvious statement here. If the Son of God finds it important enough to take time out of His busy schedule saving the world to pray, do you think that that should be some type of poignant mark at our lives that maybe in our lives, which has nothing to do with saving the world, which has everything to do with our depravity, our slavery to sin, all of those things, that we would in fact take some time to cry out and pray. So do you get the scene? Verse 29 says this, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, which gets interesting here. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now this refers to the transfiguration. In in the Greek, transfiguration means to basically be metamorphosized-ism. Alright? It's this this movement of of taking oneself and oneself now is, is transformed into something else. And so Jesus' face shines like lightning, right? And, and it, it's, what, what, what's happening here is Jesus is being shown in His glory. You guys remember in Exodus chapter 33 that this very same thing happens to Moses after an intense encounter with God, that he comes back and what? Like his whole being is gleaming. You'll remember if you've ever read Revelation that talks about Christ coming back, that there's this, this image of this great amount of light that is just beaming forth. It's giving the image of who the Messiah is. That He's way more than just here and now. That one day, He's going to sit in His glory. And then you connect that with what, with what we talked about last week. That the Son of Man is going to be what? Killed. And on the third day, be raised from the dead. And so it's this great image of glory of Christ. But before that happens, He must. Remember the word must from last week? He must die. Verse 30. Two men. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. This is hilarious, isn't it? You got Moses and you got Elijah and you got Jesus and they're all hanging out and they're all talking. No, no, no. I, I want to explain a little bit about Moses and Elijah. You're like, I've seen The Prince of Egypt. I know it's a good movie. All right, let's dig a little bit deeper, all right? Moses is this, is this man who was literally put in like a little ark, put down a river, 
brought into Egypt, grown up as an Egyptian, started to have an identity crisis and realized that he was actually a Hebrew, fled from Egypt and all of a sudden found himself at a burning bush being called by God to lead his entire nation out of Egypt, the land that he just came from. And this man, Moses, like, was so reluctant. He's like, I can't speak. I can't do this. And God said, you must. Like, this is my sovereign plan for you. So this man, Moses, then leads the charge of this bondage of slavery that Israel was under Egypt of and just takes them out, right? And if you've seen The Prince of Egypt or other movies that portrayed this, the Ten Commandments and all these Charlton Heston things, right? You, you know the story, And so Moses, and like we've said many times before, the Bible is not a book of heroes. It's a book of men, depraved in desperate need of God. And Moses is, is like, we get this inclination automatically that he's some hero that we should escalate. But friends, he is a man empowered and called by God. It's God who makes Moses who he is, not Moses. Elijah is a prophet who who comes to basically redeem Israel from their worship of this false god Baal. And he's called it a very important time in scripture. He dies some 900 years before this story is written. Moses, or excuse me, Elijah doesn't die but but gets ri- risen from from the earth some 900 years before this story happens. Moses 1500 years before this story happens. Elijah, by Malachi chapter 4, is put at the end times as the great prophet that will be the, the prophet that comes into the, into the land telling everyone that the day of the Lord is coming. I mean, these two men are largely significant. And here they are on this mountain talking with Jesus. Can you imagine this conversation, right? Moses, Elijah, and Christ. I'm sure it was about the weather, you know? So, hey, hey Moses, like... And so, like, I, I, kept, I kept trying to figure out, like, I can, I can justify Elijah. Because who, who have people, many people said that Jesus is. Many people have said, you're Elijah. Herod Antipas said this, you're Elijah, right? Like, I've heard that you're Elijah. The crowd, when Peter answered it, said many people have said that you're, you're Elijah or a great prophet. So it's easy for me or easier for me to say why Elijah would be here on this mountain. Because if the disciples see that there's Elijah and there's Jesus then they would know that Elijah is not Jesus, right? So, so that, that, one, that one I can figure out. And so I kept trying to wrestle with, like, why Moses? Like, I know he's the redeemer of, of this entire nation of Israel. And Deuteronomy chapter 18 gives reference to the fact that another great prophet will come after Moses. And so it's this image of Moses, almost like the, the pre-prophet to Christ. All of these images come to my mind. And then finally, after literally reading through the entire book of Deuteronomy, right? I'm like, Moses' entire life was about pointing to Christ. His entire life and existence was giving us an image of ultimately what Christ would do. That He would redeem people from the yoke of slavery, of sin. And Elijah's entire life pointed to the person of Jesus fulfilling the fact that all of the law and the prophets would be fulfilled in who? Would be fulfilled in Christ. So as I'm trying to devise this great equation like A plus B plus Moses minus Elijah equals something, Moses and Elijah are on this mountain for one reason and one reason only, and that is to escalate Christ. 
And that's to say that Moses and Elijah are not the son of man. They are mere men called by God. Elijah taken up to heaven, not dying. Moses dying and being buried by God. But they're both called to give great identification of who Christ is. And again, like this story of the transfiguration isn't, like I, again, it's not in baby Bibles. I haven't heard it taught a lot. But friends, we have to see that these two biblical men are there to point to the person of Christ. Verse 32. Excuse, excuse me, in the middle of verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which the, the Greek word there is, is, um, is exodus, which he was about to, to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So we get a little bit of an indication of what their conversation was about. You have Moses, you have Jesus, and you have Elijah, and they're talking about the exodus that Jesus will take from this world quite possibly his death, quite possibly his, his raising from the dead, being brought into glory. This is an intense conversation, right? Look at this, verse 32. It starts to get pretty hilarious. And I'm so glad that Peter continues to provide like our, our, our comedy for the, for the scriptures here. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And we don't, we don't get an image of how they know that it's Moses and Elijah, like if they were wearing name tags or something, like we're not really sure, right? Like, hi, I'm Moses, hi, I'm Elijah. Like, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know exactly how that these guys know that, Mo, that this is Moses and Elijah, but they wake up, right? Have you, have you ever woken up to something that you weren't expecting, you know? So like, like rubbing their eyes, and there is Jesus in His glory with Moses and Elijah. Could you imagine, like, waking up to that? You know, they're like rubbing their eyes. Am I still like, what is this? You know what I mean? But they wake up and this, this is where they are. Listen to this. In, in, in verse 33. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Of all the things that he could have said there. You know, have you ever had a moment in your life when you don't know what to say? And you're thinking about the fact that you probably shouldn't say anything, but you go ahead and say it, right? And then you realize after you've said it that you shouldn't have said it. You see, you know what I'm saying? Like, have you ever had one of those moments? Like, I feel like this is one of those moments for Peter. He's looking at Jesus in all of his glory, and this is what he says. It is good for us to be here. Could you imagine Jason John? Like, look, like, is there, could you, like, isn't there something better that you could have done right there, you know? Like, you're the spokesman of the disciples. It is good for us to be here. Thank you, Captain Ivy. It's just your trap hole, you know what I mean? Like, we don't have to say this. We all know this, right? But, but listen to this. That's, that's not the best part. It gets a little bit worse for Peter. Master, it is good for us to be here. Listen to this. Let us put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke adds... He did not know what he was saying. Now, we know that he's woken up, and, and Scripture said that he was fully awake. So for Luke to add, he did not know what he's saying, what he's saying is what Peter had to say was not very good. And he, you read this, and you're like, but, but, but these are good intentions. Peter, Peter wakes up, and he says, it's good for us to be here, which, I mean, is a true statement. And then he says, all right, let's build three shelters. If we're all looking at this, instantly we're like, okay, th- like, this isn't too bad. Like Peter is trying to just say, hey, this is, this is good. Why don't we just go ahead and capture that? The problem and the tension is that he has just called Christ the Messiah. And here he has an opportunity 
watching Jesus and seeing Jesus in all of his glory, he has an opportunity now to experience that. And Peter says, let's build three shelters. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And what does that in a statement do? It puts Moses and Elijah on the same playing field as Christ. When just a chapter or a, a, a series before, Peter has just said, you're the Messiah. And so what he's done is he's put all three of them on the same playing field. Now, now if you know anything about the, the festival of the booths from Leviticus chapter 23 and Exodus 23, which I'm sure you do, there may be some type of reference here because what they would do in this festival is they would build booths or shelters to commemorate certain events. And so it's possible that Peter in his mind is thinking to this festival and just saying, this is a good moment to commemorate. Let's build three shelters so that we can just pause here. But why didn't he say, hey, Moses and Elijah, why don't you help us? We'll build one shelter and then we can all sit around and worship the one who's worthy. You know what I mean? But he doesn't. He's constantly conflicted, friends, listen to this, about really if Christ is the Messiah and then what that lifestyle looks like if he is the Messiah. Now, all of that is not even the worst part about this. You're like, yeah, man, Peter. What? That's not even the worst part, friends. Peter tries to take an organic experience with Christ. And, and organic is simply something that comes from from a living thing. He takes this, this living moment with Christ and he tries to put some human barriers on it. Here is Christ in all of his, in all of his splendor and all of his glory. And what he says is, I can capture this moment. And if we just build some shelters and not experience the moment as it is, then we, like, we, can, just, we can build some mortar and pitch, pitch a tent here. Like This will be great. And we can capture this moment. Friends, what he does is he misses the encounter with Christ because he's so worried about putting some human terms on something that's so organic. Friends, can I... Your experiences in your past, they're there to escalate our current encounters with an organic breath of God. Those experiences and encounters are not to deter the here and now. Let me explain in a couple of examples. Many of you guys have heard me talk about several times about what happened on my college campus. Massive revival, crazy worship settings. One of my favorite parts of that entire journey was this thing called lounge worship. In a lounge worship, every other Thursday night, we would gather like 200 students and we would all be in a dark room, right? And it would just be one acoustic guitar and a djembe drum. And the voices that we heard a little bit ago, that's what it was like every single night. And so we all experienced this. And, and we didn't even know what was happening when we were in it. We were just in it. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you're not even thinking about it, but you love it. And then I left. McKendry loved every second of it. And what I keep finding myself doing is trying to recreate that experience. Is trying to put some human, like, tent formations around that experience so that I can encounter that same experience again. There is a difference between learning and trying to recreate. I mean, I can learn from that experience. I can say, yeah, yeah, that, that was an amazing experience. A guitar, a djembe, simple. That's good. And so I can learn from that and say, okay, 
Like, I want to be a part of some experiences where we have nothing except the guitar, the djembe, a bunch of people. It'll be awesome. But it's another thing for me to place myself in that room and expect that certain moments like this will be like that. It's our nature as humans to instantly try to wrap like our tents around things that we can't understand. Peter is sitting back, seeing the glory of Christ, and he's trying to build something around it so that he can better grasp it. Friends, this is the church of America, trying to build walls and mortar around an organic, breathing, living God. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. So why are we not just being present in the organic nature of Christ and stop trying to build these walls and barriers around things, trying to better understand it? It happens in your relationships, too. That one boyfriend or girlfriend or person at work that you just had this amazing relationship with or horrible. And now every present relationship that you have is suffering because of the baggage that is lingering because you've allowed those encounters to dictate your present encounters. God is trying to breathe organic life in you so that you can just experience more of Him like Peter was. Peter and James and John just get to sit back and watch the organic being of Christ. And he's like, no, no, no. Okay, let's build something. Let's, let's wrap our human minds around this. Let's try to better understand this. You're in some relationships right now. And not just with the opposite sex that are hindered because you're trying to recreate this one great relationship you had. And every relationship has to meet up to that relationship. And instead of just allowing God to breathe organic breath into this relationship and you to be able to sit back and experience it, everything has to meet up to that. And when it doesn't, inwardly you struggle. Your past is dictating... No, no, no. Listen to this. It also, it also, happens, it also happens with the way that we see church life. Church shopper or church hopper. And I'm not talking about some of you in here who, who are just checking this out for the first time. I'm talking about, about families, about people, about college students who just go from one deal to the other deal to the other deal to the other deal. And what you're doing is you're trying to find that one place that made you feel that certain way by singing that certain song with the lights coming a certain way. Everything that you encounter in the present is based upon this one little organic moment that you had to experience Christ with. And so now everything in the present is dictated by that. It's one thing to learn from this and say something like reading the Bible in church is good. I want to be at a church that reads the Bible. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, if this is not that, then it is dead wrong. When God is trying to breathe some organic life-giving breath into our existence, and we're so caught up by these past experiences. Friends, listen to this. Remembrance, true remembrance, is supposed to escalate are here and now encounters with Christ and not deter it. We remember Christ tonight and we get to experience the fresh breath that He has to breathe all over us tonight. And I feel like, friends, that we have a massive amount of repenting to do of the times and the ways that we are just like Peter 
we don't understand and so by not understanding we're like let us let's just put something around it so that we can control it i don't want to be controlled i don't want the holy spirit friends to be in some box and it won't like it will do its thing anyway but why as a church should we for a second think that we can put some walls around something that is living and active and can't be contained and i feel like if we do that that we miss that And I feel like that that's why Peter misses this whole encounter. And it's affirmed that he misses it by what happens next. Look at this. Verse 34. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Again, a cloud in Scripture bringing focus to the presence of God. Verse 35. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. So you think like this is just coincidental here? God all of a sudden just shows up. He's like, oh yeah, transfiguration. I'm just going to come down in a cloud. We'll speak. It'll be great. Peter has just put Elijah and Moses on the same plane as Jesus. And instantaneously, the cloud comes down And God says, this is my son. Now hold on a second. There are two times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that the voice of God speaks. First time what? Baptism. Second time, the transfiguration. John records a third time near the the death of Christ. The first time at the baptism, can you guys remember back to what God said? He said, you are my son. And now what does he say? He says, this is my son. So do you think he's talking to Jesus here? Negative. He is communicating to the disciples right here, right now. This is my son. Listen to him, which again goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 when it talks about this great prophet that would come after Moses and be greater than Moses and that we would supposed to listen to this great prophet. So God comes down in perfect timing like always with God and says this is my son Peter James and John there's no need to be confused there's no need to put him on the same plane as anyone else there's no reason to try to build some human understanding around him this is my son listen to him verse 36 when the voice had spoken they found that Jesus was alone the disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. So this cloud leaves, and picture this, picture this, come on. The cloud leaves, and there's Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. Can you, can you imagine, just imagine that for a second. You know, they're all like, you know, like Peter is kind of like looking at James and John, right? And Jesus is looking at them, right? And he's not transfigured anymore. And they're all alone, and it's just, it's one of those moments that's completely awkward, right? Like when, when you're in a relationship and someone says something weird and everyone just like stands there. I, like I picture that being that, right? Because Peter's, um, Peter's just been put in his place. Jesus is there, and they're, you know, they're all kind of like hands in their cloaks or whatever, you know, just hanging out. Like, what just happened? The transfiguration is not in many baby Bibles. I don't understand that. I don't understand that if God's voice speaks twice in the Gospels, why the fact that that story wouldn't be escalated to a point that it would be worth sharing with a child. 
This story is one of those stories that breathes Old Testament. You got prophets on a mountain with a cloud and God speaking. Like this is just old. Like doesn't doesn't tonight kind of feel like Genesis a little bit? I was telling the guys we were preparing. I was like, this feels like Genesis because you got God's voice and Moses and Elijah are there and they're on a mountain, right? And all this is happening. Friends, the reason why I feel like it's not in a baby Bible is because I feel like like this touches an area. Right, that, that, that gets a little bit that gets a little bit dicey to, to our even our even our Christian understanding. It taps into something so spiritual and so organic. But friends, what this story can teach us and can teach a little child is the fact that we must train and learn and ask for God's guidance to stop trying to control and put a tent of all things around the movement of Christ. Friends, what is he trying just to breathe into you right now? What is he trying to say to you right now? And you sat here all night, and all you can do is anything but sit here in the moment. Be fully present. You tonight have been so affected by all of these past experiences, instead of just learning from them, like you're like trying to, you're trying to put God in this little, this little box that can't. Church, we must believe that God's breath is living and active and alive and is out there to call us to great encounters and experiences of seeing even His glory. And that those moments, friends, are meant to escalate, the, the remembrance of those moments are meant to escalate our current experiences and encounters with Christ. Stand up, stand up with me, friends, would you please? So you are here tonight and... The reality is, is you're just, like you just feel like you haven't heard from him in a while. You feel like that, he's, his voice has just been void from your life. Could it be that your entire recent existence has been trying to understand, has been trying to place bricks and mortar around something that if just let loose, you would come into this whole new reality of Christ. I want to I talk specifically to the people right now who just feel like you're, you've been struggling in your relationship with Christ. No word time, lack of prayer, lack of fervor, pursuit of Him. Friends, it's time just to, just to, let, just to let go. It's time just to stop reacting so quickly in your humanness and start seeing that if He is the Messiah, that He is the only one worthy of anything that I've got. I want to pray for you specifically tonight before we respond in worship. Those people in here that have just been struggling. Jason, Jeff, and I would love to talk with you and pray with you tonight afterwards. Your walk has just been, it's been nothing. It's been dry. It's been stagnant. There's no zeal. The reality is you haven't read the Bible in three weeks. 
just feel like there's nothing there, I want to pray for you right now. We'll respond and worship tonight. Father God, I just ask that um, I just ask for those hearts right now that are that are just yearning yearning to hear from you yearning to experience you yearning to encounter you God, I pray that no longer our worship times or our relationships or our church experiences will be hindered by all of our past baggage. I pray, God, that we'll be let loose to experience the organic aspect of your great work and call. And I pray, God, for those hearts in here tonight that are just struggling, caught up in repetitive sin, completely distant from you. God, may you breathe your breath of life anew in those hearts here tonight, right now, Lord Jesus. Hear our cries of worship as we respond to you.